Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. And this is an episode I have been waiting to have for many, many months because LCI is announcing a new book. We have produced a book called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. This book, which is written by myself and the three other people that are joining us here on this episode, which I'll introduce in a second, has been something we've been working on for like two years. We're excited because we are able to help equip Christians to make the Christian case for free society. So if you are a libertarian Christian, or if you are favorable to freedom and you have open questions about, well, what about this? What about that? We've got the book for you. And so we're going to talk about that in this episode. We're going to tell you how you can order it, how you can pre-order it, how many copies you can buy, all the different formats, everything, you know, everything you need to know about this book. We're going to, we're going to give you that information. So I have with me the other three authors, and it's Dr. Norman Horn. Hello, hello. We have Carrie Baldwin. Hello. And we have Dick Clark. How's it going? So, guys, I'm really excited for this. I am looking forward to our conversation. And I also am like super excited for this episode to launch. Like, we're recording this obviously before it launches. And I'm just like, oh, but let's get it out now. I want to tell more and more people. So, I'm really excited about this book. I know you guys are too because you guys are promoting it on social media. And we're going to keep getting the word out. So I just want you to each introduce yourself so that in case people aren't familiar with who you are, because I know, you know, if somebody's been familiar with LCI for a long time, they probably know who you are, but that may not be true of every listener. So, Norman, I'm going to have you start and we'll then just go down the list. Well, I, I would hope that if you're a, list, a regular listener on this podcast, <laughs> you'd probably have heard my voice at some point or another in the even recent past. But I'm Norman Horn, and I'm the founder of LibertarianChristians.com and, and the Libertarian Christian Institute. This has been a dream of mine for some time. This was a, a project that where if you've been involved for some time with LCI, you will have heard about it probably more like three years ago at this point where uh, it began taking shape in even the things I was talking about at the time. So I'm Carrie Baldwin. I've been a contributor at LCI for, what, two years now. And I also have my own blog, mereliberty.com. And uh, I'm a confessionally reformed believer. And a lot of my focus is on sort of women's issues from a libertarian perspective. So I've done a lot of the work on, you know, abortion and, and women's rights and things like that. So I'm Dick Clark. I'm an attorney here in Nebraska, and I have been, I guess you could say, a proselytizing libertarian, uh, along with being a proselytizing Christian, you know, for some time now. Uh, Bob Murphy sold me on uh, the idea that really uh, being a Christian ought to imply being a libertarian, or at least in some respects, he, he sold me on that. And uh, really, I've been excited about that ever since. And I just encouraged uh, to work on this project where we're trying to help other believers understand why it's important to promote justice and how that relates to being a Christian. So a lot of fun working on this project. Thanks, guys. So, Norman, you talked about this sort of having its inception about three or so years ago. And even in some ways, it even goes back 
before that because of the you know audience questions that we've got and reader questions that we've received over the years. So give us a little bit of like the prehistory that led up to the culmination of we need to make a book. Oh, sure. Yeah, this goes back almost eons, it feels like, even from the beginning of LCC, where, you know, frequently when you start a blog, you put a way of contacting the authors and whatnot. And so I had done that and began receiving questions almost immediately uh, because LCC was fairly unique for its time. And over those years, I started accumulating questions. And at one point, I even built an FAQ section on LCC. But realistically, it needed to get both revised, expanded, and really just uh, turned into something completely different. So I don't know exactly the, the very first point at which I'd said, hey, this needs to happen. But it was at least three years ago where I felt like that this needed to get crystallized into an actual book. And a major reason for that was that one of the major inspirations for the book was Mary Ruart's Short Answers to Tough Questions for Libertarians, which is a little book that she published, I believe, at least 20 years ago for the first time, which it was really intended at the time for, for libertarian candidates to have a, an easy reference guide to answer questions, say, in debates or, or, uh, or that they could have at their desk when they were replying to emails or in interviews or something to that effect. And that was, that was a really cool little book, and I thought it was, it was excellent uh, and really informative, and I felt that we needed something like that for, specifically for Christian libertarians because there's so many things that are unique to the way that we think about the propagation of liberty in a free society, that it felt like that, you know, this is, it's time that we do something that really hits this out of the park and something that people can take home, have on their bookshelf, refer to it easily, and be confident that what's within it is plumb-line libertarian and plumb-line Christian at the same time. And so that was, that was really the genesis of it, is to get something like that into the hands of our supporters and anybody who would be interested in such a thing. And so the Q&A format was really the goal from the beginning. And that's really what the book is like, is that it's divided into sections of topics uh, where in a conversational way, questions are posed and then answered in roughly speaking about 200 words. There are over 100 questions in the book now, which means that it ends up being a little bit under 150 pages, which is just right, we believe, for easy accessibility for any type of reader, the curious Christian who's just wanting to learn more and the Christian libertarian who's uh, more well ensconced in their, in the philosophy but really wants to have clear and concise answers to the types of questions that they experience on a regular basis. And so that was, that was kind of how it came to be and why we wrote it that way. And then bringing in everybody else into the project, you know, it started off just really being Doug and me thinking about it, but we realized that it would be just so much better if we had a more collaborative approach to it and so thinking on that for a while, it became evident that bringing in Carrie was, would be an excellent idea and uh, to, to have her, her wisdom in on the project, as well as you know my friend Dick, who I've known for, what, going on 15 years now, where we first met each other at the Mises Institute way back in the day, back before he was even married, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we, we've known each other a long time, and, and there's few people that I trust more than Dick to be able to, to eruditely answer tough questions that come across our desk like this. And Norman, to me, one of the great things about the Q&A format is that you don't have to necessarily commit to reading the whole book if there's a burning question on your mind as a reader that, hey, how do people you know, answer this objection? And so in a sense, it gets people interested in the book without having to fully commit to, hey, I'm going to sit down and read you know, even a 150-page 
book is longer than most people are willing to commit to these days, I feel like, <laughs> uh, especially uh, if it's not you know, their friend who wrote the book or something, or they've got an ulterior motive. And so they can get in cheap. And of course, I like anything that uh, resembles the sort of work that my hero, Walter Block, has turned out. You know, his first great popular uh, work, I think, was Defending the Undefendable, which of course is very episodic and, you know, it's based on answering particular questions and sort of bite-sized responses. And, and to me, that's just a good format to to help the reader get what he wants out of the book without having to swim the whole length of the pool, you know? And an interesting kind of to dovetail off that, that uh, we've noticed people who have been, you know, pre-reading the book uh, have been saying to us is that they're describing it almost like a catechism. Mm -hmm. And it hadn't really occurred to me that that was in in a a (laughs) manner of kind of what we were doing on some level. I mean, not that we're trying to elevate to the level of, you know, (laughs) a theological catechism, per se. That's not what we, we set out to do, but it has that sort of feel on some level. And that's kind of neat. Well, and I think, you know, the Q&A format and sort of to that end of, of the catechism feel is that these are starting points for conversations, right? There's a lot of people who have been critical of a libertarian Christian perspective saying, you know, Christian libertarians can't answer this question or they can't answer that question. And we're offering answers to these questions, but each question, I think, also has its own deep dive that anybody can explore more deeply. And so it's really a start of yeah. a conversation and not the end of the conversation. Yeah, I one of the things that, like Norman said, we started with is sort of like this 200-word goal because in some ways, if you can't answer something relatively succinctly, then maybe your answer is formulated in such a way that it's not very clear to somebody. And so we want to give aid to people who are like, well, you know, I've often had people ask, well, what about this? And I'll be like, well, let's go have a few beers and we'll talk about it. And it's like, (laughs) they don't want to do that. They want to know sort of a succinct answer. And we want to help people in those situations to be like, well, it's a long story. It's blah, 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 blah. So these like shorter couple hundred word answers are what kind of give like the baseline substance to the kinds of good, right answers. And then as Carrie noticed, of course, we have, you know, you can dive even further on every section because we've even included like, hey, if this, you know, if you need to read more, here's a list of resources that you can look into. Yeah, and I think this was an effort to summarize a solid response to these answers. But but as you've all said, this isn't the end of the conversation by any means, but hopefully it gets people pointed in a fruitful direction mm-hmm. where they can dig in deeper. And of course, you know, I, I believe that every believer uh, has a responsibility to uh, dive into the scripture and, you know, seek, uh, you know, the Spirit's help in discerning what's there. And so that is uh, part of the process. But if you can get in to a text that might be relevant to a question and then see what's there, boy, that's uh, a good head start rather than having to stumble across it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that we have four different authors and it would be nearly impossible for all four of us to always approach the answers in the exact same way. Yeah. You know, Carrie, you're more into women's issues and thinking about that as a guy in our society today. I'm not allowed to say anything about women's (laughs) issues. So (laughs) obviously we're laughing at that, but it's a real thing we don't identify each person who answered each question. So you'd have to ask us individually, hey, Carrie, did you answer this question? Although I think everything in the abortion section is yours. But, um, you know, generally speaking, we aren't going to 100% 
even, I don't want to say we're not going to 100% agree because we're all agreeing that this book is what we want to say, but we might put it differently. Mm-hmm. Like if someone asked me the abortion question, I might say something slightly different. And so there's this like mixture of angles and perspectives that I think actually gives the book a lot more, oh gosh, I don't even know what the word is. Like it actually makes it more appealing because I don't have to answer the whole thing in sort of like one person's you know, perspective or way of a way of thinking through it. Well, and I think it's helpful because politics today has really um, lost an appreciation for nuance, and each of us do actually bring a nuanced perspective to to each yeah. of these questions. And you know, I would encourage readers, you know, especially if you you come from a particular background, to reach out to us to sort of expand on some of these things and talk more about these things. Because as you said, we we all approach it from a slightly different perspective, but that nuance is necessary. And I think it's helpful for people who are trying to work things out. It doesn't have to be so starkly black and white. So let's jump into some of the key highlights of the book. You know, we can kind of cover a few of the chapters in general and like why we wanted to approach it this way. And what Norman and I did a few years ago is we kind of sat down and we were like, hey, we're going to write up a list of all the questions that we tend to get asked. And we kind of pulled them from emails, from the FAQ section that we have on our website, and just, of course, some of the questions that we know people, you know, ask all the time, like, what about the roads? And so we kind of wrote them down, and then we're like, okay, how do we categorize them? And then we're like, well, then now, how do we put them in a certain order? And what order should that be? So we start with, why should a Christian even care about politics? I know that there are many Christians out there And it's hard to think right now because, I mean, literally this episode is launching the day before the election in 2020 that people don't care about politics. I mean, everybody seems to care about politics. Yet, you will talk to Christians who will say, well, why should I really care about politics? They might be from like the Anabaptist tradition or they may just not care. And they might be like, yeah, it's just not my thing. I'm just going to do the Jesus thing. And we have an answer for that. It has to do with what does it mean to declare Jesus as Lord? And we want people to know, hey, you should care about politics. And we make a distinction between politics and electoral politics because you're a Christian, not because it's some like, oh, this is the most important election of our lifetime and Christians can't stay silent. Nothing like that. So we, we discuss why Christians should care about politics. Well, Doug, I think a lot of it just has to do with being salty, not in the pop culture sense, but in the <laughs> summer on the Navy sense. sense. That, uh, you know, if I am going to be light in this world or salt in this world, I I have to call evil evil. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to condemn individuals or get up on some individual's case about an error or mistake or sin in their life. But I still have to identify sin as sin and injustice as injustice. And I think that that is part of us being opposed to perversions of justice, which God is the author of true justice, right? And so if we are going to know the character of God, and if we're going to share that with others, this is part of his character, is that he Mm -hmm. abhors evil and abhors injustice, and he abhors the perversions of justice, especially by corrupt people trying to, you know, steal and defraud, right? And that Mm -hmm. is all part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, that's not related to how you uh, are saved from your sins, but it's about how we live as Christians in a fallen world and, and how we can uh, best represent the kingdom, right? The, the kingdom yeah. that we most care about, at least in this podcast. 
Yeah. And I think ideas have consequences. And so it's, uh, there's to some degree, you know, I can sympathize with those people who are sick and tired of politics and don't want to have anything to do with politics. And yet there are ideas that are floating around that are having real consequences on -hmm. our society today. And so we can't just sort of live in this world where we don't want to pay attention to the ideas because they're difficult to think through or they, you know, create tension in good relationships or or whatnot. The idea here is, is that these these ideas have real consequences. And so we want to make sure that the ideas that we're following, the ideas that we're adhering to are actually, you know, biblically based or at least compatible with a Christian worldview. And one more thing needs to be added to this, because I think this section is strangely enough, maybe the the section upon which much of the book really holds or is strung upon. And that has to do with, there is a great confusion in the church today regarding the way that we even fundamentally think about politics. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way in which the church views itself in this kind of nonprofit space right, that we're supposed to have this sort of aloofness in the church to electoral politics in particular, as all nonprofits do. That is part of the regulation, of course. But they often take that into a different realm to where it is not meant to be talked about at all. Right. And when it is, it is only in the context of something uh, on the order of, well, our Christian faith can be talked about outside of the church with regards to specific policies and whatnot, but it is always going to be in the support of a party. Yeah. And that's, it's a remarkable thing when you think about it. The state has in many respects co-opted the church in this regard, mm-hmm. and it's taken advantage of the type of status that it holds by imposing these things upon it on some level. And for good or for ill, they exist. So let's, you know, we can leave that as it is. I'm not saying that churches should stop being 501c3s or something to that effect. But rather, the freedom that comes from abandoning the idea that you do not have to attach politics to party and that it is more important to hold fast to principles is truly the revolutionary piece. And that's what the Bible ultimately does teach is that the allegiance that we hold to King Jesus outweighs and and trumps, to use a terrible pun for this election (laughs) season, everything else that any state could possibly put before you. And if there's any message that we're trying to get across in the book, it would be for the Christian to recognize this and to change their minds with respect to these sorts of principles. If anyone can make that change fundamentally in their brain, then they have freed themselves from a form of tyranny that goes much deeper than I'm paying taxes mm. and so on and so forth. But it is it is something that is absolutely crucial to, I mean, literally, I would say to the future of the church, mm-hmm. if not the world itself, the society at large, and especially the, the church in America needs to hear that this type of alternative exists, that you do not have to be wed to any party, that in fact, the only thing we should be wed to is that we are the bride of Christ. So that's, that's awesome to me. And I, that's where I keep coming down on every time. Norman, you bring up 
political party. And of course, we could go back to the founding of the American Republic and concerns of uh, Jefferson and others about factions. But I think for the Christian, the verse that jumps out to me about the the sort of sins we engage in because of the temptations that parties present, uh, it reminds me of Acts 10, where it says, God is no respecter of persons, right? And now that's yep. talking about treating people differently, maybe because some are wealthy and some aren't. Or, but, you know, the fact that we so often see folks of a certain party glossing over the sins or injustices or bad acts of their folks and focusing on those of the other as if, you know, their own people's wrongs didn't matter, that it's just clear that it's hypocritical, right? And people on both sides recognize that it's hypocritical, but they keep doing it uh, in favor of their own folks. And I think for a Christian, you have to call sin, sin. Uh, And, you know, there was an article uh, that we were talking about earlier before we started recording that uh, came out from John Piper talking about his view on uh, voting and the the corrupting influence of a, a person uh, in a position of authority who demonstrates you know uh, personal immorality, uh, right? To, I, I think that's fair to sort of summarize what Piper was talking about. Yeah. But Piper didn't seem to get to the obvious conclusion that hey, party is the is the temptation itself, right? That's what you have to jettison is this idea that you must pick one of these poisons, right? And there is another option that you can refrain from supporting evil altogether. And absolutely, you know, a corrupt king or a corrupt ruler can set a sort of tenor in public conversation that indeed is corrupting of of a nation. But the answer isn't to then just go pick a different strongman or a different bad guy because he's he's not bad in that particular way, right? Yep. Cling to Christ. No king but King Jesus. Yeah. Our our culture of politics is this idea that if you start exploring ideas of whatever the other side is, that you must be, you know, swinging to their position. And I've run into this a lot with talking about abortion because I look at it from from both sides of, you know, both the pro-choice view and the pro-life view. So for somebody like me, who's much more conservative to even say the word women's issues or women's rights, that sends off an alarm in people's minds that I've swung one way or the other. And that's sort of the culture that we're trying to encourage Christians to get away from, is we can actually look at these problems that that we're faced with in society and not simply resort to the partisan politics. And then that there's no reason for us to be divisive on these things. It again goes back to what I was talking about earlier with nuance. We need to be able to appreciate nuance a little bit better than we are. And then, you know, to Dick's point is there's this idea, I mean, even with with John Piper's article, right, is he was being critical of, of people who demonstrate a personal immorality. And Readers of that article immediately thought that he was talking about Trump, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. He didn't actually talk about who he's going to vote for, but the response to that was, oh, John Piper must be voting for, for Biden. He's just, he's just dancing around this issue. And so that's sort of the thing that we're trying to encourage Christians to get away from is, okay, let's look at these issues. Let's look at these problems. You know, the book addresses concerns of both the quote right and the left and fleshes those out through, you know, hopefully some some a, a different alternative perspective that maybe we haven't thought about as a as a society or a culture before. 
I guess that brings us to this sort of alternative perspective because obviously, you know, we like I just said, we start off with why should Christians care about politics? And in some ways, you know, that could go a number of directions for the rest of the book. But obviously, we're libertarians, and the next section in our book is the basics of libertarianism as it, you know, as it relates to a Christian. And sometimes those answers are like, hey, here's just some basic facts about what it means to be against against aggression or to embrace the non-aggression principle. So that third perspective, I think, is obviously going to be like, here's the insight that we have into other Christians. And this isn't now where the book gets to be like, okay, we've we've started to say, hey, here's why you need to care a little bit more deeply and think consistently about how your faith influences your public life and how it influences things like the state. What could that look like that you're not familiar with? Right, and so let's discuss a little bit of the libertarian basics that we that we cover. Um, so just kind of whet the appetite of the listener. Well, maybe the first thing that we should point out is that we and we draw this distinction in the book is the difference between libertarian philosophy and the libertarian party, because we certainly don't want to get accused of of yeah. simply adding to the partisan politics with the the quote unquote third party. I mean, there's. There are some good aspects of of the Libertarian Party, and there are some you know aspects that maybe we disagree with. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about libertarianism, we're talking about a political philosophy. We're talking about yeah. foundational principles that ought to be driving our view of of civil governance and justice and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the transitional question between chapter one and chapter two is, does that mean I need to be part of the Libertarian Party, or is that the same thing? So yeah, you're 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 totally right. It's like we need to make sure that we're not talking about the party. Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately the principles are are the critical things, but then we do also have to consider or we or we might consider what our strategy is for trying to maybe achieve some social ends, but let's always remember that libertarianism is a theory of of justice and we can apply that theory of justice on an individual level, right? And we can act in a way that is informed by our understanding of, of justice, even if others aren't doing the same, right? And, and that's something that I like to point out to folks. And I, I wrote an article a few years back that was on lourockwell.com about a sort of activist division of labor, right? Not everybody has to be doing the same thing uh, in order to try to advance uh, those objectives. Uh, and it's okay that different people are operating uh, on a different part of the problem or using a different strategy. And I think that libertarians, perhaps more than other folks, ought to recognize the wisdom in letting a thousand flowers bloom in that way. You know, inevitably, the thing that people, that Christians will have an issue with with libertarians is the moral aspect of things. And in that they think that libertarians endorse or think it's okay that someone's a prostitute. So, you know, Carrie, I think you answered the question, it, does it mean that I have to endorse prostitution? And you just, you answered it with one word, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> the answer I, is no. I, I started out with one word, but yeah, <laughs> I was no, told we, we, we needed more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, I mean, I think I know why that you answered it with one word, sort of tongue in cheek. It's like, well, why would you think that saying that something can be legal is that something I have to endorse or be in favor of? So this is kind of the bad rap that libertarians can often get by conservatives and for that matter, even, even left-leaning progressives because they think that we're in favor of the things that we think could be legal. So Yeah, I well, and I want to say something about that because, you know, 
this is right in line with the political culture that we're experiencing today. Not only are political parties defining what political philosophies we're supposed to be following, right? If we want to know what a Republican philosophy is about, we go to the Republican Party platform or the Democratic Party platform for what a democracy is about. And yet those things all keep changing. Those candidates keep changing. You know, we've gone with the Republican Party from from supporting a free market to now exploring the idea of a universal basic income. So and then on the moral question, right, is now we're saying, well, the, well, the government has to define morality or the government has to legislate morality. There's that, you know, that phrase that sometimes loses its meaning, I think. And when we talk about libertarian philosophy, we are talking about something that's, that's relatively confined, which is, you know, about civil justice. It's about what's legally due to other people. It's not about what's morally due to other people. That's ethics. That's a completely separate field. And it has some overlap because obviously we would say that it should be illegal to murder somebody and that it's also immoral to murder somebody. But we try and draw out those those distinctions between what's morally due and what's legally due, because what ends up being confused about that is if what's legally due is also what's morally due, then we start trying to create laws that are compelling us to love one another, which is the moral aspect. And that's where you're coming up with all of these things in the pandemic, like the mask mandate, right? It may be loving to another person to wear a mask. Is that something that is within the jurisdiction of, of the state and civil justice? And that's something that we should talk about. And so it's the same thing with the prostitution question. Like, we can talk about the morality of of prostitution and maybe some of the the cultural reasons why that exists, but does that necessarily mean that it should be a matter for uh, for the civil courts for the for civil justice? Well, and Carrie, a distinction that I like to draw is that you know morality is what you ought to do, and justice is what you can be compelled to do, right? And so mm-hmm. liberty is freedom from compulsion, right? Freedom from external compulsion. And so if we're libertarians, I mean, it shouldn't be any surprise to folks when we are very skeptical about using compulsion as a solution for every social problem. Mm -hmm. And certainly as Christians, I, I think we have an invaluable insight that you know, atheist folks who find themselves uh, as libertarians don't have recourse to, and that's that there's this sin problem in the world. And we understand that ultimately there's a big idolatry problem, right, that people place on the throne of their heart instead of God. And until we understand that sin problem, it's hard for us to wrap our head around the fact that that compulsion really can't be the answer uh, to that basic problem in the world. And as Christians, we're taught to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. And that doesn't mean, I don't think, that we have to be pacifists, but it does mean that I think we should analyze these problems differently and through the lens of loving that person that might be an aggressor in this particular circumstance that I'm in, and maybe I'm his victim. Uh, but a uh, worldview that's informed by love, by love of Christ, uh, helps me to understand uh, how to react to that aggressor, not just in a way that's better for me, but that's better for him and better for the kingdom of God. Well, and you bring up the sin aspect, which I think is very good, because a lot of times Christian libertarians get accused of being utopian, like 
our ideas will on, only exist if sin wasn't a problem. And I think we all acknowledge that sin is a problem. It's a major problem. In fact, that's why we have the positions that we do. Right. We don't not we count on people being sinful. Yes, we, that's exactly right. We count on people being sinful. And then and we raise the question, should we be concentrating power in the hands of sinners via the state? <laughs> you know, like that's that's a question we should be asking. And I really like Robert Higgs's quip about this. He says, without the state, we would we would have a very bad situation, right? That the human condition is such that it's not going to be utopia. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be a bad situation. But with the state, especially a, an ever-growing dictatorial state, we're going to have a much, much worse situation. So, And I think we're seeing that in our culture. And so it's time to reevaluate our view of politics from a Christian perspective and what the role of the civil magistrates and civil justice is supposed to be. It, it often is the case that these types of questions are posed from a perspective that doesn't really know how to approach it in the first place because they're grounded in a philosophy that is so fundamentally different that they just they they have no conception and and by that I mean kind of like this if you're asking how are people going to uh, deal with prostitutes or something to that effect without the government coming down on them uh, or something like that that then you're asking that question with a priorly accepted viewpoint that makes it virtually impossible from your own perspective at that point to answer without the use of force. And so again, it comes down to really changing one's mind mm -hmm. about a series of principles that you're going to, that you, that you have to change what you priorly hold. And that's really crucial in order to answer these types of questions comprehensively. Well, and so many folks are just tempted by fear to take recourse to a remedy that we know isn't God's best, right? Uh, I mean, there's so much in the Bible about how we are supposed to react to injustice. And so often, even Christians end up just wanting to put their faith in the strong man, right? I mean, it's that basic problem of, are the elders of Israel, are we as the heirs, you know, adopted heirs of, of Abraham, going to trust in the God of Israel who brought Israel out of Egypt and was physically present with them and handed down the law through Moses and worked all these other miracles? Or are we going to put our trust in a big, tall, handsome fella that's head and shoulders over everybody else and maybe he'll intimidate the other nations, right? I mean, that that's the temptation that we're, that we're wrestling with. And it's still a temptation today for believers, just like it was in ancient Israel. And it's a poison and it gets in the way of so much that we're supposed to be doing in evangelism uh, and in other aspects of our life as Christian believers. Well, and the other temptation, Dick, is that if the state is there, you know, one of the one of the views, especially I think in conservative evangelicalism of the state is that they're there to punish sin. And so there's this idea that if they're there to punish sin, that somehow we can actually wipe some of these sinful behaviors out of out of our society. Like if we make prostitution illegal, then it's gone. We don't have to deal with it. Like that's that's the temptation. If we make abortion illegal and just for the record, I think abortion should be illegal. But the idea from that that conservative perspective is if we make it illegal, it's the end of it. We're not doing it anymore. It's not a part of our society anymore. And that's not the case. If the state, if man's law, 
could get rid of sin, then what does that say about God's law? Is God's law imperfect? Is God's law not capable of getting rid of sin and man's law is? I mean, I think, I think there's the, a verse for that, isn't there? There's, yeah, there's there's <laughs> the the temptation is to think that we can do what God couldn't, quote unquote, do when really the purpose of the law was completely different. The purpose of God's law was completely different. Well, that's what a right. great point. What a great point. Yeah, and I, if I could just quote Ludwig von Mises, I don't think that'll offend anybody here. Uh, but you are <laughs> definitely allowed. In his book, <laughs> Omnipotent Government in 1944, now, Mises wasn't a Christian. Uh, he was an atheist. But I think that Christians can agree with this statement that, uh, especially in the modern era, uh, he said, men now seem eager to vest all powers in governments, i.e. in the apparatus of social compulsion and coercion. They aim at totalitarianism, that is, conditions in which all human affairs are managed by government. They hail every step toward more government interference as progress toward a more perfect world. They're confident that the governments will transform the earth into a paradise. And that's the heresy, right? That's the heresy of statolatry, as he called it, and Pope Pius XI called it, and the fascists themselves called it in a favorable sense. But that replacement <laughs> of God, of divine, with the state, and that putting the state on the throne where God should be on the throne. And, and to me, Christians ought to see that as throwing a big red flag that we have to put the brakes on when we recognize that. Yeah. So everybody's going to want to know, how can I get the book? And it is going to be available in about every format. We have it available for pre-order on Kindle. And you can right get now. right now. Uh, <laughs> and you can even buy it on Kindle after it launches. You can find out all you need to know at faithseekingfreedom.com. That's faithseekingfreedom.com. So you can pre-order the Kindle version. You can be signed up to be alerted to special offers. Uh, we're going to offer bulk discounts um, because what we really want is for, not only for people to read well, it. for the physical copies. For yes, that's true. Yeah, sorry. Uh, what, we, what we want is for people to give out copies. Yeah, of course, if you buy one copy, we're super thrilled and we hope that it really helps you. But we hope that you either come back later or you just buy a whole bunch because this is something you can also give out to your friends. And for the people who are kind of on the fence about things or maybe they're just like, hey, I just need this all condensed in one book for me to kind of understand Christian libertarianism. So we are going to have a soft cover version uh, released in November. And at some point in the next month or so, there will be an audiobook. In fact, we actually have some of that audiobook produced. And at the end of this episode, after the credits, you can stay tuned in, if you will. I don't think anybody tunes a podcast, but anyway, you can stay <laughs> tuned in to listen to a sample from the audiobook. Hey, Doug, do we want to um, sort of plug some of the topics that we address in, in the chapters of the book? Yeah, sure. I think this would be a really good time to just like throw, throw out a few that each of us is really excited to, to have out there. Ooh, here we go. Here we go. What was your favorite question to write? Oh, man. <laughs> Actually, I'm my least favorite question to rewrite was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I had two questions that were my favorite. And it wasn't really because it was super fun to write, but because it was the most challenging as far as the pro-life, pro-choice perspective. And that was the two questions that talked about what do we do about abortion in a society where it's legal versus a society where it's illegal. And my, my point in answering that question was to say, 
our strategy should be the same, whether it's legal or illegal. The legality of it just sort of changes some of the the nuances about what to do, you know, when it occurs. But I'm sort of, I wanted to write that section because we've got this idea, at least in the conventional sense, that our strategy has to change according to whether abortion is legal or not. And I think that's that's a wrong way to look at it. Yeah, Carrie, your section was the the section that I was looking forward to reading most myself because I'm not as well versed as you are in articulating these posi- the position on abortion. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, all right, I'm so glad Carrie's writing this because I'm going to read this when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> My I'm favorite- so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you, <laughs> that's, that's probably the fourth time I've told you this. My favorite question was is probably like a toss-up between like, Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. So how does that mean that this is something that Christians should talk about? And then whether or not, actually, let me read it here. Shouldn't Christians honor those who sacrifice their lives for their countrymen? It has to do with that verse, you know, greater love has no man who, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. And answering the, that on the, what about nationalism, the nation state, and patriotism? So those were probably two of my favorites. Yeah, I like I like that question about nationalism and patriotism because you know we we discussed the issue of of military service in that question, and that's one of those <laughs> that's one of those challenging topics. Yeah, I think my favorite uh, questions to write had to do with nations versus the nation state, uh, how that relates to immigration, how that relates to national defense, because I I really do think that so many people are tempted by the perceived safety that they think they can get from states, from powerful Mm. rulers. And that is one of the most seductive things uh, about the state, right? Randolph Bourne famously said that war is the health of the state, right? And, And that doesn't mean that having a bunch of wars makes your, you know, government run better, right? No, that means that war and the specter of war uh, is what keeps people coming back and buying more of what the state's selling because their their understanding, which we believe is mistaken, is that the state will generate safety for them, right, as a sort of public good. And uh, we have to help people free their mind from this trap because, of course, we know that we should fear God and trust in him uh, and not put our trust in horses and chariots or strong men mm-hmm. uh, and so to me, that was the stuff that I wrote with probably the greatest conviction, and especially looking at how God confused the languages and separated nations and so on, digging into that scriptural account uh, that I looked at in part for writing that response was a, a lot of fun, and I learned a lot from writing it. So, Well, Dick, you bring up a good point about you know war and people feeling safe and sort of that that framework that the state operates in, and you know we've gone from having actual wars with with nations, right, like World War II or World War One or the Korean War, to wars on ideas or wars on things. So the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on COVID, and it's all couched in this language of we're going to keep you safe. You, what you really need is safety from this this very dangerous mm. world and these very dangerous ideas. So for me, when we started off on this, I had one stipulation because I knew we knew from the beginning we were going to divide up questions kind of on people's interests and whatnot. And I, and I sort of said, 
you know, I'll take what people don't want. <laughs> except, <laughs> but, except, except I, my one stipulation was that I had, I wanted to be able to write a lot of the stuff early on in the book on the theology, because that's really my passion is, is learning that, explaining it and trying to contextualize what we see in the scripture regarding power uh, for the modern day. So to me, I like the, the first section is definitely where I'm, all about and and probably my favorite piece there, honest to goodness, is this question uh, that says, you know, what scriptural support is there that the state is inherently bad? Because <laughs> because mm-hmm. it kind of it, ever since I've I started writing about this stuff, I've made a lot of people very uncomfortable <laughs> because <laughs> it goes so far against what we're trained up to believe. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. so, so it's very exciting to get to write that sort of stuff for me uh, because it's it's like the most pure form of resistance that I know how to do to the powers that be is to take the scripture and throw it back in their faces. <laughs> and so that's that's fun for me. <laughs> so as we wrap up this conversation, I think the one outstanding question I have I want us to discuss is what about the reader who doesn't agree with every answer? And what I mean by that is there's bound to be somebody out there. In fact, I would venture to say every reader would, out of 102 questions would look at one of these questions and say, yeah, I still disagree. Or mm-hmm. uh, I'd put it a little differently. Or maybe that answer you know, missed out on something that's really important to me or whatever. And so we don't want to communicate that you have to buy every question, as in like buy into the answer that we provide for every question. But what do you guys think of the, uh, the reader who's going to be like, eh, not so much on that one? Well... I think that those readers should follow their instinct. I mean, part of, and I've, I've said this before, part of our political culture right now is it's got to be black or white. It's us versus them. It's, there's no room for nuance. And I think that, you know, the reader who looks at a question and goes, eh, I think there's more to this that, that wasn't actually fleshed out. Like, yes, respect that instinct and, you know, either reach out to us or try and flesh it out yourself. Um, but the idea is, is this is the starting point of a conversation. And we're trying to present alternative views to what we are typically accustomed to hearing in this left-right paradigm that's just being becoming more and more polarized mm-hmm, and tribalistic. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to encourage that, that polarization. We want to encourage the nuance. Yeah, we're not trying to lock in only a third option now. Right, (laughs) exactly. I I hope that people read this as something that we wrote in good faith, believing that we were getting it right, but with the, you know, critical eye that all believers should have when it comes to people talking about spiritual things, right? Go and see whether this is so, right? Go back and and look at the Word and check our work. And, you know, hopefully this helps people to consider passages of scripture in a light that they might not have considered before or in support of conclusions that they might not have seen that that was connected to before. But we think that everybody has to do their due diligence, right? And, and that's the work of every believer is to to try to uh, understand the character of God and grow as yeah. a Christian believer and understand uh, God's word. So, And well, there'll be two other things you can do with the, the material as well. One is that we're providing a lot of additional resources. So if you do read it and think, eh, I need to learn more. I want to understand this a little better. I don't, I'm not sure I agree with this yet. There's going to be resources at every chapter for you to go out and take a look at 
for greater detail. And then, of course, if you, as, as Carrie kind of alluded to, there will be a way via faithseekingfreedom.com, which will redirect to libertarianchristians.com, but that'll be an easy way for you to remember it. There will be a way that you can contact us and submit your own question or just provide your own comment. And the more that we receive stuff like that, the more that we will end up, of course, responding because we, we will read every single question. We may take us a while to respond to every single one, but <laughs> we will read them quickly. Yeah. And uh, those will turn into other blog posts, other you know email responses, and maybe even some type of, uh, you know I don't know, second volume in the future. You never mm. know. You know, because there's more than 102 questions yeah. that, can, <laughs> that are asked. <laughs> and so if we can, if we can compile another 102 questions, that are new or whatever, then we will we'll keep publishing. So keep the conversation going. Yep. We don't have an equivalent of Revelation twenty two nineteen about adding or yeah, taking away done. from the word here. <laughs> so uh, certainly the uh, the canon is open when it comes to the body of work from LCI and on this topic. <laughs> yes. Yes. At some Terrific. point, we'll we'll create a council and and end all publication. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you can pre-order the book on Kindle, or if you're listening to this after launch, you can buy the book on Kindle. If you do decide to pre-order it, it is only 99 cents. The price is going to go up. It's going to go up to 9.99. The physical book price is 11.99 when the soft cover is released, which will be this month in November. And the audiobook is sort of a to-be-determined price because Audible sets the price on that based on length and some other factors. If you want to buy copies in bulk for your friends, we were, we were going to have a way for you to do that. All the details will be found at faithseekingfreedom.com. And because LCI is a 501c3 nonprofit, you can donate, and that will help us offset any costs that are incurred by offering such a steep discount when people buy in bulk. So you can help us in that regard. Maybe you're like, hey, I want this to be out there. I want 500,000, 15,000, whatever, you know, numbers of copies. And if I can be part of that, here's a, here's a bunch of money so that you guys can print more uh, for people book, to buy. And you get a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, Oprah. Um, in fact, we actually, one of the reasons we can offer these discounts is that we have a few people who have, who have begun to do that. But we want to, we want to give out as many as we give out or get out, I should say, as many as we can. So, Thanks, you guys, for uh, coming on and talking about this book. We could have a podcast for every chapter if we wanted to. And who knows? We might even do that. (laughs) We might might even do that. If we're so busy shipping books and selling and promoting this book, we might just have to do that. Oh, man, that's like the pastor's like, my new 107-week sermon series will be on. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Oh, that's great. All right. Thanks, guys. And again, stay tuned for a sample of the audiobook after the end credits. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
Chapter 1. Why Should I Care About Politics? The fact that the problem of church and state is of such central importance is a corollary of the end times attitude of Christianity. Because the gospel presents itself as the polituma, the community of the coming age, it must accordingly see as its most intrinsic concern its disposition toward the present polis, the secular state, and therefore not uncritically accept it, as if the state itself were something final, definitive. Oscar Coleman Question 1. Politics isn't a gospel issue, so why should I be concerned about politics? Most people think of politics as electoral politics, elections, politicians, and voting. A more robust understanding is that politics is more like a subset of the ways in which human beings choose to relate, specifically with regard to the appropriate use of physical force and power. Culture is another means of how we relate to each other, and while part of that is political, much of it is not. In this sense, the saying, politics is life, is true. When we advocate anything that affects the lives of others, we are doing politics in this very broad sense. Most Christians believe that the gospel has implications for the real world, which makes the gospel relevant to politics. This also means that Christians are political, whether they realize it or not. Libertarian Christians care about how people in the world relate to one another in ways that align with the ethic and message of the kingdom of God. We do not say that all Christians should vote for a particular type of candidate, or even vote at all. Not only do we want Christians to be aware of the human relationships that are part of what it means to be human, but also at the forefront of pushing human relationships toward mutual benefit and interacting peacefully. See chapters 3 through 4. Question 2. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Isn't political engagement being concerned with this world? As Jesus announced the coming of God's kingdom, throughout the Gospels we see that his kingdom did not operate upon the principles of worldly kingdoms, not of this world. This doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is not for this world. The very word kingdom is inherently political, meaning the king's domain. Modern Christians often miss the explicitly political language of the New Testament. The phrases, Jesus is Lord and Son of God, were in Jesus' day an affront to Caesar. It was Caesar who rode into cities on a war horse, demanding people's allegiance, promising an age of peace won by violence, and demanding submission. In contrast, Jesus came promising the life of the age to come, eternal life, through faith in him a peace that was not won through violence, but through the forgiveness of sins and allegiance to him. To give allegiance to Jesus Christ is to strip Rome of its power and authority. This is how the gospel is a direct challenge to the state and its power. In part, when Christians invite others to believe the gospel, they are inviting them to declare allegiance to God, not the state. Question 3. Politics just seems like a distraction from the real mission of the church. When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, they are also giving their allegiance to a new king. Today, this often does not amount to defying the current political regimes, but it does mean a new way of thinking, practicing, and evangelizing. Instead of allegiance to mammon, we preach allegiance to God. Instead of pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, we seek to enjoy all things to the glory of God. We honor the one true king when we promote the good news that Jesus is the Messiah and through him we can have eternal life, which by definition begins before death. 
To repent and believe the good news entails far more than what happens to us personally. It is not simply for us to have a private religious experience. Jesus inaugurated a kingdom over which his rule would be established through what would become his followers, the body of Christ or the church. Kingdom people are his royal subjects, working to bring the whole creation to bear witness to the good news that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. To be engaged in spreading the gospel is to announce the arrival of God's kingdom, followed by an invitation to repent and participate in the kingdom. Participation happens in a variety of ways, some of which look more political than others. But every one of our efforts are political in the sense that we are engaging the world around us in ways that bring about more flourishing, even if these efforts are not directly engaged in electoral politics. Question 4. So what does God have to say about government? God does speak about governance in Scripture, and there has been much debate about the implications of what he says. Inferred by this is usually a question of whether a particular political philosophy is prescribed by God. In other words, would Jesus have been a socialist? A Republican? Alternatively, there is a popular view that Christians must submit to government regardless of the lawlessness of its edicts. We disagree. Scripture speaks to the fact of civil governance and its necessity. Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14, and Titus 3, 1. But it does not explicate a precise way of administering civil governance. In other words, God doesn't give us an operations manual for providing the service of civil justice. What God provides are norms of civil justice that are evident in creation and are therefore comprehensible by all human beings. However, the systems by which humanity has administered or attempted to administer civil justice are human inventions known as political philosophies. Political philosophies are attempts to articulate the best way of achieving a just system of governance. Libertarianism is one such philosophy, and we believe it's the best expression of Christian political thought because it most aligns with God-given norms expressed in Scripture and evidenced in nature. One important distinction we make is between the state and civil governance. And in our view, the state is inherently bad and tends to corrupt good civil governance. As Christians, we can take our cue from historic Christian orthodoxy and the historic confessions of faith. These only oblige Christian submission to civil authorities on matters that are lawful ordinances of God, but they don't obligate abject submission to all edicts and don't oppose resistance to unlawful or unrestrained sword power. Because of this, we hold the distinction between the state and civil governance to be legitimate and necessary. To hear more, download the audiobook on libertarianchristians.com this Christmas season 2020.